Before we start with this episode, I want to take 20 seconds from your time. First of all, we changed our intro. Let us know what you think. And secondly, don't forget to follow us. It means a lot to us. And now, let's go to the episode. This is Tomorrow's Bite Podcast. The podcast where food is not a problem, but a solution for your business, career, or personal life. Stories that allow us all to get inspired, gain knowledge, and grow to create a better tomorrow. And today we talk about... When I was 13, both my father and my sister got diagnosed with cancer. And that shattered my world for a long time. I would constantly talk to people and they would find that what they're doing with their life is not matching their values. And they literally got themselves into a dead end. I looked at that and I was like... Maybe that's a sign. Maybe I should be looking at my values. So with lobsters, what's fascinating is that um, they used to be so plentiful. Therefore, they were seen as food for the poor. We are not uh, as rational as we believe to be. It's always the question for who is the food system designed? But I was wondering why... Do people who have apparently the same goal to make our food system better, such different notions, and why do they hate each other so much? (laughs) First of all, I I think if you go to the extremes of any of these, it's easy to get trapped. The, The thing that I'm aiming at is to help people to understand what are... Marina Smith, founder and co-host of the podcast series Red to Green, knows really well that our perspectives on food are crucial to understand what matters to us and what does not. Through her podcast, she brilliantly sheds light on the industry to grow understanding around the food systems. Tune in to our conversation with her to discover what your thoughts on the food industry tell about you and how we can use that knowledge to create a better world. Now, welcome, Marina, to the podcast, The Worst Bite. Uh, we are very glad to have you here on. Um, Marina, the steps that you've taken are quite clear, but to our listeners, who, how would you summarize these into your mission? I would say my mission is, in general, very focused on anything related to sustainability in the food system. And it follows the tagline of the Red to Green podcast, which is moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. One of the things that we do normally in this podcast is also looking into how our youth shaped the people that we are today. So in your opinion, how did your youth shape your person, like personally or professionally? When I was 13, both my father and my sister got diagnosed with cancer. And that shattered my world for a long time. And it also shattered all of my preconceived beliefs in how we eat, how we sleep, uh, how we are living our lives. And I... I developed quite a lot of concern of developing cancer myself. Uh, So I therefore also became very passionate about nutrition and understanding toxins in our environment and how these in turn come back to us, right? What we, what we give to the environment through water, through air, through the earth comes back to us. Therefore, Yeah, I was both very nerdy about nutrition from a young age uh, and about uh, toxicology, yeah. And you followed your path um, when actually your values became clear to you later as well on sustainability and food tech. And yoga, in a sense, as I heard in one of your episodes, also really helped you with this, finding out. Uh, Why are these topics so closely bound to you? It took me a while uh, 
after my teens to actually realize that I want to work in this area. How long is that ago now? I think eight years ago, I founded my first company um, in career consulting. It actually is still running, which is crazy <laughs> to me. <laughs> and the reason is because it's a company working with the government. Once you're in, you're in. <laughs> uh, so um, the the company helps academics to understand what their career passion is and helps them to get into the job they want with c- career and application consulting, like job consulting. So I would end up being constantly at job fairs. By the way, disclaimer, I'm, I've never been a career coach. I was in charge of marketing and business development. Okay. <laughs> Don't, I can give you career advice, but it's, <laughs> it's not from a professional. <laughs> uh, so I would talk to hundreds of people at these career fairs. And there was one really obvious pattern that I couldn't overlook. It was so in my face. I would constantly talk to people pretty progressed in their career at different ages, but established. They had worked themselves through the hierarchy of needs in Maslow's sense. They had the physiological safety. Um, they had the, uh, the, the self-esteem. They, they got to the fourth layer the self-esteem layer where you feel like you are accomplished and you're being respected for what you're doing. But then it, they get to the question, now what? And they would find that what they're doing with their life is not matching their values. And they literally got themselves into a dead end or they reached the ceiling of the Maslow's pyramid within their career track. So a lot of them would have to completely switch career paths, would have to switch industries, would intern in a a sustainability-related startup, right? And I looked at that and I was like, hmm, maybe that's a sign. Maybe I should be looking at my values and what I really care about. And I had to question, like, is that career consulting? No. (laughs) Like, Super valid, could be somebody else's thing, but it's not my driving force. And uh, I, it took me several years of working in different positions, working on pan-European innovation with the World Economic Forum, working in uh, market analysis and consulting um, until I got to the point of realizing, okay, uh, part, partly also due to going to a meditation and yoga retreat. Like it has to be sustainability. It has to be sustainability, but that's too big. That's too broad. And then I did what everybody with a sane mind would do and just made a spreadsheet on it, (laughs) which we have available actually on our website, redtogreen.solutions. And is an impact spreadsheet. I think it was at 120 or even 200 areas of impact that you can rate from one to 10 and see which ones you're actually most passionate about. And when I filled it out, I realized all of my 10, 10s and nines were in food. My only 10 at that time was uh, cellular agriculture. And my nines were uh, regenerative agriculture packaging, which is sort of, you know, in the food industry, wink, wink, uh, food waste, vertical farming. <laughs> well, that bombed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I looked at it and I was like, how is it possible I didn't see this? Like, this was so apparent, like insane, like how, how like it was so close in front of me and I just was blind to it. Um, and yeah, so I got into studying uh, science and technology history with a focus on agriculture and food. Um, and um, later started also Red to Green, a podcast specialized on these topics. Looking into Red to Green, uh, one good thing that that you are really, uh, you are a film supporter of food tech innovations. So why is that? I'm actually not sure I'm such a... <laughs> supporter of food tech innovations 
<laughs> I know that I'm perceived this way, but because I have covered a lot of specific topics, like the first season that I did with Red to Green um, was on cellular agriculture. And for people who maybe don't know Red to Green, the concept that makes the Red to Green podcast different is that it's more like an audio course. So every topic we cover in 12 episodes and over seven hours of content. So I started with cellular agriculture right uh, when Corona hit, which was awesome because uh, I had lots of time on my hands. And also the people, the interview guests, guests had lots of time on their hands. Uh, so it was a good starting point. Um, and later, uh, pretty much four of the seasons that we have are alt protein related. However, I, there's a lot of innovation in the space that I don't find too inspiring because it doesn't really move the needle. And that's why within Red to Green, I always look at, is this actually a game-changing innovation? Does this impact sustainability? I think innovations like some kind of order optimization SaaS tool for hospitality are cool if they are hitting a need. Like, look, if they're successful, go, go guys, great. But I don't, I, I, just because it's some kind of innovation and it doesn't make me excited. And some of them, I must say, like with molecular farming, for example, I'm still out. Like I'm, I even had like personal conversations with people in the space working on it. And I'm like, I don't, I, I'm not yet sold. And I'm, I don't know whether I will ever be sold on it. Um, so it helps to also have a critical view on innovations in the space of cult cellular agriculture. I would say it's always a risk reward. Uh, question as well, right? If the problem is big enough and you know that the baseline, the, the current situation has problems anyway, you cannot look for a perfect solution. That's not how we have evolved as humanity. I, I always joke that we slowly crawl ourselves upwards from like one shitty solution with a side effect to the next uh, interim solution to the next interim solution, right? Yeah, you you need to switch to electric uh, cars, for example, while also investing in public transport. Electric cars have their issues, but like you just you just do one step at a time, just like a founder. You don't you need to do one step at a time, otherwise you go crazy. <laughs> and and why did you create the podcast Red to Green in the end? Is it like one that shows clearly your values? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I looked at the space and I felt there is one thing missing. You have on the one side content that's all over the place. Right? You have press releases and announcements and here and this. And every post is on a different topic or every podcast episode is on a different topic but it doesn't actually explain the systemic things. And I've never been that much into hypes or trends. I always want to figure out how is this working at its core? How is the technology working? How are the principles working? Which also makes Red to Green more evergreen. And people are still listening to the first episodes. Now it's, wait, when did that start? Like three and a half years ago or like nearly four years ago, people are still telling me like both... The last two weeks, I've had five, six people come in person to me saying, like, I just started listening to the first season of your podcast. And I'm like, Jesus, go, go, uh, Trooper. Like, great, fantastic. Like, <laughs> and it made me actually go through all the episodes on Saturday. I went through all episodes and I did a little cleanup and I deleted some that I didn't feel are any relevant anymore. So I keep the past content up to date as well. Um which is why if you don't see 12 episodes, it's because I deleted some. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and you changed pictures as well. So. Yes, I changed, gave it a little design refresh. Yeah, because your your podcast <laughs> is one of my favorites and I, I, I listened uh, already for some time and I asked Andres, why, why is it not like very cool to have her here on the, on the podcast? Um, 
you you make well deep dived informative episodes on very hooked topics around food um and sustainability in a sense and what are are actually so far your favorite episodes that you did and why they are oftentimes very linked to what listeners like the most um i from the beginning would i would look into the podcast stats and i would see that like I would analyze the retention rates and just like Netflix edits their episodes, their movies in retrospect to see, okay, where are people dropping off? I would uh, also go in with my editor and say, okay, let's look at this uh, episode. Why, um, why is it performing well? Why isn't it performing well? And adjust the title, adjust the, uh, the cut of the beginning, like remake them sometimes. And my, the ones that I'm the most proud of, it's it's hard to tell. I know that people really enjoy the biotech and food season. And I got like dozens and dozens and dozens of people reaching out to me on LinkedIn, telling me that they just really enjoyed that season, which originally I felt not as happy about because I felt like, ah, oh, I have future too many startups. I wanted to have more diverse perspectives. Like, mm. <laughs> but people just love that season because it's so technical. It's so de deep and like nerdy. So it hits the sweet spot for a certain type of audience that just is willing to listen to some episodes twice <laughs> or some people told me like they have to take notes, you know? Um, but in terms of the design of the season, I'm the most proud of the food waste season because we really sat down. We, we, every season takes a lot of time because there's planning in it. And I have to understand the area to be able to design a season. So in food waste, we did it along the supply chain and we, included the talk like talking to um, a direct to consumer farming company uh, we looked at the wholesale stage the retail stage the consumer stage the the what happens after the consumer we looked at the regulation um, covered the US Europe Asia and also spoke to a diversity of guests chefs investors um, startups corporates activists, yeah so that's the gold standard for a season that i set for myself to put it so much time into season planning because it's like a sudoku uh, one thing that we like a lot about your podcast and it's something that i believe that as as a society you know, as a general that we don't take so much into account the the role of food in history or the history uh, of food and I believe that that is something really nice. You you have seasons talking about uh, different like innovation within the context of of food history, and that makes a really nice perspective. For example, you have this episode talking about the lobsters. Uh, like we didn't know that this product at first was some sort of uh, low economic value uh, product, and then it has become one of the yeah, it's a, a a synonym of luxury in some ways. Not a lot of times, uh, lobster and and seafood. So, what do these historical stories show us? What are the key lessons that we can get from them? In the discipline of technology history, it's actually a bit controversial whether you can use history to learn from it or not. I believe yes. I mean, if you what else can you learn from? It's like the biography of the world. <laughs> I was asked if you want to make food tech predictions or food industry predictions, what do you base your predictions on? If it's just 20, 30 years of data, that's, that's so little. Like you have the wealth of history uh, that could give you much better predictions because while the systems are slightly changing over time or sometimes in intensely changing actually the the baseline is the the human <laughs> and we are not uh, the as rational as we believe to be with the lobster example so that was part of our season three i think on, on food history which was supposed to be like a little quick 
in between season because it would be so easy to do. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and it absolutely blew up in my face. And I was like, oh my God, this is, but I say that about every single season, every, every time I have amnesia and I'm like, this is the season that I spent the most work on ever. And like, I've never had such a complicated season to make. And I, I was like, and then I forget about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing it again. You don't look back yeah. in history for that. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not learning from that history. <laughs> so with lobsters, what's fascinating is that um, they used to be so plentiful uh, in, in parts of the world. Um, the lobs lobsters are actually bottom dwellers, right? They are at the, at the bottom of the ocean and they were super available in the Northwest Atlantic ocean, meaning that if you would walk into the water, you, it, it's just, you walk through lobsters <laughs> and therefore there is seen as food for the poor. Um, what's, was fascinating is that when sometimes you have these these phenomenons that as technologies develop right they have all of these side effects in terms of promoting also cultural changes because they are like gateways uh to interconnectedness between different parts of the world um, or they they encourage new people to have access to new resources etc so what happened with the development of the train lines in the u.s is that people who did not know about the concept of lobsters being a poor person's food got exposed to them during the train rides the train operators were wondering, how can we make money? How can we like, sell food uh, while, of course, maximizing our margins? Lobster meat, lobster flesh, for example, canned lobsters uh, were super, super cheap. So they would sell them to the travelers as something desirable. And travelers who didn't have the preconceived notion of this being the, the insects of the ocean actually like the taste of it, which shows us and teaches us that we are not interacting with food ever in a neutral way. It's like there is a layer of culture that is coating our tongue. We are tasting with a preconceived notion of what we are supposed to experience. I am sure that if I would eat an insect bar without knowing that it's an insect bar, I would like it uh, but as soon as you put the name cricket on it i do not want to eat it <laughs> the, the likelihood of me enjoying the eating experience plummets and that's something that a lot of people can relate to um so yeah we need to always consider the cultural context and also use that sometimes to our advantage thinking about how can we make something be more desirable? How can we make the right things become more appealing? And as a historian, what are the top three takeaways that we can learn from our forefathers when looking at the current food industry? Yeah, uh, three is going to be a lot. <laughs> I'll try to not talk for 20 minutes. <laughs> um, well, one of them, one of the favorite episodes of, of red to green is on bananas i think in general bananas have a soft spot in a lot of people's hearts and uh, it's fascinating because we have already repeatedly had a threat to our global supply of bananas because they have been grown in massive monocultures um and there used to actually be a better banana around, a much more creamy banana, the Grand Michel. But in the 1950s, uh, there was the spread of a Panama disease, a fungus that just spread like crazy all across the world because everywhere we had the Grand Michel, the same type of banana. We had to scramble to find a replacement, and we did, which is a banana that we now have, which is like it stays greener for longer, which is better for shipping it. However, of course, the same thing happens again 
we have now something called uh, Tropical Race 4. Isn't that hilarious? It sounds like a game for teenagers. <laughs> Tropical Race 4, you know, like who can, who can take this serious? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a version of the Panama disease, again, a fungi, a mold. And, um, a big banana, uh, manu well, manufacturers, you can call them, uh, big banana traders need to face the challenge. Like, how, what, how are you going to do this? Uh, what if the world supply of bananas is threatened again? And nowadays, I actually talked to a company that knew that and anticipated this. And they use comp a computational breeding, which is when you use AI to predict breeding outcomes, to already develop um, a banana that has the resistance towards this disease. They talked to Chiquita uh, in advance and said, "Like, hey, do you should we like work on this together or not?" And Chiquita was like, "Nah, it's not going to happen. Like, it's all fine. Like, whatever." Of course, then this disease spread and they came to Shikita and said, well, look, we actually have the solution to what's now your problem, not just a prevention measure anymore. And they got to charge Shikita an insane amount um, for for the new new bread variety. That's just a fun story of, you know, people don't like to pay for prevention. But if you have a solution to an acute problem, that's when when you really can... Uh, progress with your business proposals. <laughs> um, but the takeaway from this is that monocultures are not just problematic for our environment because they, of course, are an issue to food safety or, or, or food security. There's a difference between food safety and security. So it's an issue to food security, <laughs> just to be clear on that. Um, and, but in in the grand scheme of things, actually, it's even more an issue to uh, sustainability because of the biodiversity uh, that loss that comes with it. Now we wanted to move to one of your most recent pieces of work uh, you shared with us, that is this, the, a food futurist model, a framework that it allows us to categorize food innovators as if it was a personality test, uh, as you commented me. Uh, before we get deep into it, could you explain, explain briefly what is it and how did you start working on this? Well, the seed of it started uh, as I noticed like how different people would comment below my LinkedIn posts. That's how all good ideas in this world come to be. <laughs> Reflections of LinkedIn post comments. <laughs> I just noticed that when I would talk about biotechnology there would be a certain group of people that would really dislike posts uh, which would be people with a more ecological background and when i would talk about regenerative agriculture i would inevitably have people uh, comment that are very deep into biotechnology and they really dislike like or, or don't like the notion of regenerative agriculture now there are there's to point out there is misunderstanding and there is extremism in both sides and there are certain approaches in both of these camps which are too far-fetched right um but i was wondering why do people who have apparently the same goal to make our food system better such different notions and why do they hate each other so much <laughs> like, um so what started as a pop culture investigation um, it developed uh, when I looked into something called the history of the future of food. You can look at the 20th century and look at how we have historically predicted our future of food to develop. There used to be very clear camps. You had something called the cornucopians uh, who are very tied to colonialism and we can just you know, we can just conquer more lands. Like we run off out of oranges, like just get another country of oranges. <laughs> more cacao, easy. <laughs> and that has developed towards something that I would deem now the technocrats. Um, 
you run out of cacao, well, you just develop a cacao alternative that doesn't have any cacao in it. Like, ta-da! <laughs> so the technocrats believe that... Oh, I will not ex get into explaining it right now. But yeah, so you have the cornucopians um, historically. Then you have the egalitarians, which are the ones saying, well, the issues in our food system are just a reflection of the inequalities in our food system. We have enough if we would share it more. And you have the Malthusians, um, which or who who believe that we are just too many people and we need to find ways to reduce population growth or reverse population growth because there are limited resources. So you need to take that into account. And um, looking at these three, I was like, okay, I see they are historically, they're present in the historic literature. I think they have changed. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. Like they have different aims. They have different nuances. So I updated them to the model that I'm now sharing with people. I'm actually in the naming phase. I think I, I'm, I'm right now calling it integral futurism. Integral because integral is all about understanding that this is part, this part is making this a whole, right? It's important. It's integral. All of these belief systems are integral to get to a food system that is worthwhile. I looked at it and I said, there's, there's something missing, right? I don't have the ecological perspective in it. And that's why I added the ecologist uh, as a counterpoint, as, as a futurist that looks at it with a traditional understanding or a holistic understanding of how nature and humans and animals interact and the value of the ecosystem and the value of interconnectedness between our soil and our gut health and so on. And funnily, this framework absolutely overlaps with a framework that I went to a seminar on maybe 12 years ago, a ridiculous amount of time ago, this a framework called the DISC model, D-I-C, D-I-S-C, DISC. It's a personality model, which actually describes them in colors. So in if you overlap these two models, you would have the technocrat being uh, red, uh, somebody who's very alpha and outgoing and go-getter. Yeah. The modern Malthusian, who is blue, who is very scientific and accurate and counting, you know, the, yeah, we need to get all of the details right and a little rigid, maybe. The egalitarian being yellow, somebody who is very social and outgoing, and vi it talks about visions and ideas and equality and big topics. And the ecologist being green, somebody who is more calm and, you know, okay with slower, but like a, a good life that's slow and nourishing and cares about harmony and everything being in community, right? So you have these four archetypes overlapping uh, the model as well, yeah. So now let, let's dive into the framework. Like you, you said, we can go defining the different categories. Maybe we can even put some examples of what we are referring right now in the in the food industry. Uh, let's just start just right now with the technocrat. Uh, the who is a technocrat and what innovations that are happening right now would represent the technocrat uh, personality. So just as a disclaimer, to preface it, if you look at the DISC model, uh, finally, only 5% of people are just one of these archetypes. About 85% are two. Uh, and then you have some that are three. And very rarely do you have somebody who is like in equal balance of all four. But that means that when we talk about these individual archetypes, it, it, those are archetypes, so you are most likely not one of them. Uh, you are a mix, and they also change. Like, And we can actively decide to broaden our horizon and include more archetypes in our framework, which is what I'm aiming to do with this. 
the technocrat is the most prevalent archetype within the food tech industry. You most often meet technocrats as startup founders in venture capital. It's all about believing that innovation and technology can solve issues, including societal issues. It's oftentimes associated with uh, having a deep belief in um, rapid innovations and in scaling uh, in the market. Neoliberalism is highly interconnected with the technocrat. And the way of communication of the technocrat is pretty bold, like momentum, scale, growth, like uh, digitization, disruption, uh, which is what it takes to raise the necessary amount of funding. A technocrat could also be just somebody who is more of a tinkerer and says, I'm going to be the person in the lab to create this new technology, or I'm going to, an engineer uh, who believes that if they just find a new way of building something that's more efficient, and that will be the preferred and more efficient method, then this is going to move the needle. Yeah. Now moving to another one, the egalitarian. Yeah, the egalitarian. Egalitarians are oftentimes found in the social side of the sector. You can find them in positions at NGOs uh, and in international organizations. It's it's about the the core belief of a technocrat is we can solve it with technology. The core belief of the egalitarian is we can solve it with equality. Uh, we can solve it with a just distribution. Uh, there is enough food. It's just too much is uh, given to the wrong people. <laughs> oh no, no, no. That's 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 too harshly. Uh, it's who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that back. I'm sorry, dear egalitarians. <laughs> yeah, like if you. Some people are consuming too much. Others are getting too little. The supply chains aren't working. So, so egalitarians are very critical of large monopolies, big, like, or, or for example, huge, uh, um, not going to name names, but companies, uh, colonializing water supply, uh, stuff like that. Egalitarians are not up for that at all. And I think we, a lot of us, right, can find these belief systems within ourselves where we can empathize with that. Uh, it's a lot about sharing food, food banks, development, social aid, etc. Then moving to the Malthusians, how would you describe them? Malthusians are the accountants and scientists of the food system. Uh, so they say, well, we need a more efficient food system. Like we are wasting too much. And there is a, and so please be aware that the Malthusians in a historical sense are different from what I'm describing as modern Malthusians in my framework. Modern Malthusians uh, are not uh, aiming at decimating population growth. Uh, they are aiming at looking at resources with appreciation and saying, okay, we have plastic. That's a valuable resource because fossil fuels are very costly to our environment. How can we find a more efficient way of wrapping, uh, our, our food? The, the Malthusians look at things in terms of input in, reward out. They streamline. They you, you find it a lot in um, in startups that are working on prediction on AI to improve orders, to improve supply chains, to increase traceability, and also whenever you hear anything that's related to um, CO two certificates or uh, the actual corporate social responsibility, that tends to be a bit of a Malthusian approach. Um, you can also look at all of these in a grander scale. I'm right now describing the grander scale, but on a personal level, if you're looking at it from a Malthusian standpoint, you would say, how can I live a zero waste life? How can I 
track my carbon footprint? Uh, how can I reduce my personal emissions? That's a modern Malthusian framework. Uh, whereas if you are acting from a egalitarian standpoint, you would think, how can I be involved in my local food bank? How can I get involved in Fridays for Future? Um, how can I join an, a, an organization or do some politi political campaigning? You can also look at it from your personal standpoint. Hmm. And finally, the, the, the one that you added, that is the ecologist, how, how would you define them? Yeah, so the ecologists believe that we would have enough if we would live in line with nature, if we would create systems that mimic nature, which are inherently circular um, and balanced. It's all about ecosystems, how things interconnect. Therefore, the ecologists, I actually, I think, underappreciated in our modern food system because there is a deep wisdom of understanding how different life forms are all tied together and that you have to keep the pest, uh, you have to keep the predator alive uh, in, in winter um, with a little bit of pest. So in the summer, you still have the predator. Like <laughs> there, there are these, these curious ways of looking at topics which like the technocrat has a very different approach like also very inspiring in terms of we need to radically think in a different way like we need to inv invent something that's going to be a game changer i think cultivated meat is definitely that kind of thinking whereas the ecologist would say how can we create an agroforest that is big um And, and, and beautiful and biodiverse and feeds people. It's a lot also about the connection to food, uh, and the appreciation of healthfulness, nutrition, vitality. But to get to solve problems in the food system, sometimes you need to. So if you want to create solutions in the food system, you sometimes need to look at it from several angles, like somebody who would uh, want to really move the food system would need to maybe look at a solution that incorporates both the technocrats view and the ecologist and the Malthusian. And in the overlap of these, that's when you can find really interesting business models, for example, um, business models like Klim uh, that K-L-I-M, um, who are helping farmers to scale by providing them both the resources through CO2 uh, certificates, right? And that's a Malthusian thing, um, giving them the access to knowledge through a platform. That's a, a technocrats thing, uh, but also empowering them in the transition to a regenerative future, which is an ecological thing. Um, Yeah, and to add the personal perspective to the ecologists, on a personal level, that would be making your own agroforest. <laughs> it's, I think it's quite a privilege. Uh, like farming is a duty for most anybody who actually has to be a farmer. That's uh, that's really, really, really tough job. It has been for most of history, if not all of history, and it, it's not getting easier. I would argue, and um, but for people who have the ability the luxury to do farming as a as a passion as a preoccupation as a privilege creating an agroforest would be a an action you can do from the ecological perspective the ecologists that actually gives back to nature by adding to biodiversity are, are there any blind spots in this model that people uh, who could not be represented into it well every model is just a simplification of reality to give us an easier time to grasp topics because the of course having four archetypes is it's not too detailed but that also makes it usable <laughs> that makes it possible to look at a startup pitch deck and realize okay somebody's trying to do um tech innovation uh you know that's technocratic uh, by building a um, company which is gathering data on microbes that's more Malthusian like okay doing doing a lot of optimization uh, and sharing a 
bag of fertilizer each time they sell one that's egalitarian uh, to improve soil health. That's ecological, right? So you you start using the framework to actually understand and process information through it. Um, one of the times, again, the LinkedIn comments uh, are uh, treasure hunt <laughs> for insights. Uh, when I recently posted on this model on LinkedIn, somebody commented on it who is describing himself as an ecologist and it was such a such an irony because i was talking about the value of all of these and how we need to work together instead of working against each other and that person commented like yeah so we the ecologists are making a little pop-up group with the egalitarians uh, and we are buddying up uh, and working on projects that the Malthusians and the technocrats are not allowed to join. And <laughs> it was, it had this feel of a teenager you know, grouping up with his buddies, which is exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to do. It's exactly what I'm trying to avoid. So I think the main lack of this model is still my clarity of communication and of course it can be used for people to just identify themselves with an area like I'm a technocrat, I'm an egalitarian, I'm an ecologist and then cling to this position to create even more of an antagonist interaction towards others. What I aim to do with this is first of all I, I think if you go to the extremes of any of these uh, you it, it's easy to get trapped right? Like there, there's purism in any of these to say, well, we just need X. No, <laughs> that's not no. Whatever starts with we just need, no, <laughs> that's not the solution, whatever is coming. <laughs> and the, the, the thing that I'm aiming at is to help people to understand what are my personal blind spots for each person to understand, okay, I tend to never consider by default the egalitarian view. And to then be able to consciously, with a conscious effort, think like, oh, but maybe I could look at this from a different perspective and become more integral. So a person that is that is able, not by nature, but by conscious will, to hold all of these perspectives in their mind would be somebody that I would call an an, an integral uh, person for our food system yeah and what are yeah where are you actually located in your framework I used to be quite a technocrat uh, when I started out with red to green and I have increasingly become more of an ecologist and my blind spot, I think, is still the egalitarian viewpoint. Of course, I'm learning about the geopolitics of food and the the issues in the global south. It just uh, is still a topic that I know I have to have more attention on. Um, and I'm aiming towards being a balanced mix of all of these and including them all in my um reference and also to shift the way that I produce content to represent all of these views in a balanced way. And after all the research and talks, I'm actually wondering what shocked you the most of our current established food system? And um, is it maybe the power of the lobbyist or the actual increase in sugar consumption of other things in the industry? Hmm. I had a phase where I was really into uh, true crime in the food industry. Super fun. Uh, I got I got a bit out of it mainly because I think every system is faulty, and we get outraged because we expect that it shouldn't be this way. Uh, but that's just the the way that systems are but they are built on established systems and even if we i don't know i can even like look at simple things even if you build a startup you you do something then you get into a routine and then things are done because things are done this way it's in the micro as in the macro and in the food industry being one of the largest industry in the world there's not 
there's not little to criticize. It's not so easy to criticize, actually. It's extremely easy to criticize. And we need much more effort at being more hopeful and positive about it because that's hard. <laughs> that takes more effort. Uh, for example, there are so many documentaries on the food industry that it, it has been like a trend, like the last couple of years is more documentaries on the food industry. And they tend to criticize what's happening, but very few of them show possibilities. Very few of them show innovations happening because that actually takes more effort and more courage uh, to go out. So the, the things that I'm mostly hopeful about in the industry, in the food industry, is that there are a lot of, there's a great influx of people working on the, the topic. It has become, it has become much more widespread amongst the general population that food is a topic of concern. Um, and I, I meet a lot of the people in this space and I get to see the amount of competence and passion that is driving them, which gives me hope. You also look into the future with your work, having episodes, for instance, about lab-grown meat and precision fermentation. What is in your eyes the most promising innovations and why? I recently, last Friday, <laughs> I was in a at a regulatory conference and I uh, posted on something I call alt-protein fatigue syndrome. <laughs> I love that post. Eh? I was thinking to to put it as a question somewhere. Uh, I love that post eh? because I feel really, really yes, yes, identified. It because it was actually at an alt-protein-focused conference. And I just had this knockout moment. It's like when an introvert spends an entire weekend at... Uh, by the way, I can sort of feed, hear myself as a feedback from somebody's speakers. Yeah, just... Uh, it's a little strict. Great, thank you. Um, so it was actually at a alt protein focused conference, and I felt a bit like how a, a super intense introvert must feel being a whole weekend at a social gathering. Like I just had this moment of like, oh, <laughs> I can't. Like <laughs> I think I'm developing an allergy to the word alt protein. <laughs> And then I talked with people about it and so many people could relate. So I said, okay, that needs to be a term for it, which is alt protein fatigue syndrome uh, or short uh, APFS. <laughs> so being diagnosed with APFS usually comes from uh, hype coupled with unrealistic expectations, which is what we fell for. It's the same thing. Like if you would, we all expected that the the, the space would take off and then there were there were claims that were made like by 2030 50% of all of our protein consumption is going to be fueled by plant-based precision and biomass right if you think about it now you're like what <laughs> like it was outlandish two years ago to propose that it's it's borderline ridiculous now um and so yeah I, I don't know. I, I totally went on a riff uh, on on that question, uh, but okay. To bring it to a positive point, I I think, yeah. I just uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's the sense. There's a first. <laughs> so I think actually I would have had an easier time answering this question <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> so. Going back to the what I said previously, <laughs> that you know the hard thing is looking at the positives. Yeah, I have to <laughs> follow my own piece of advice here. Hmm. <laughs> uh, but I do, I do still think like if we adjust our expectations and yeah, like things take time, right? It, and that's also a value of history, like. There were innovations that made so much sense. Like, you know, like the funniest thing, like the potato history. Uh, we, in the, in the season of, on food history, the first episode was on the history of potatoes. And that's so funny because like the, the potato is actually like a magical food. It can, um, survive in very bad soil. It cannot be robbed 
uh, it can't be stolen. Oh, well, the potato doesn't own much, so you cannot be robbed. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's getting late. Um, <laughs> uh, for record, I, I'm not drinking alcohol right now. This is just my brain. Uh, <laughs> so the it, when a village is plundered, you, like most likely nobody's going to stop to dig out potatoes, right? They will come, la- come by and steal wheat. Um, and a potato is super nutritious, even though now, because we have this association with French fries, we think that potatoes are really bad. Actually, potatoes are quite nutritious compared to a lot of classic grains that we have. Therefore, like you can see, I'm a big potato raver. And objectively, potatoes were what humanity needed already way, way earlier. But it took the potato 300 years to actually... Uh, come into society and be accepted because it was associated with leprosy. Like people thought that what you eat, that's what you become like on a much more serious level than nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) So people were like, I don't want to look like a potato. (laughs) Uh, It's, um, it's associated with witchcraft. Uh, People didn't know what to do with potatoes, right? Like, they just don't take taste like anything. So it was pig's food. And it took so much like active lobbying to convince people, yeah, potatoes are great, but also a breeding and um, making them adjust to the European climate, which was confusing the potato. <laughs> One of my favorite terms to confuse a potato. You can confuse a potato uh, by changing the weather uh, drastically because they came from the Colombian exchange, right? They came from the what's nowadays uh, Peru, Bolivia to Europe, and that's such a different climate. So, um, therefore, like what's also interesting is that we always think about there is an invention, it makes sense, and then people will have it, right? That's not the case. Uh, and another one is there's an invention, somebody invents something and then it's done uh, and it's on the market. Even something as simple as a potato was going through an iterative process um, to adjust to our eating eating habits. The invention of French fries was so important uh, for potatoes to spread across across Europe Um yeah, we need to look at each innovation and each technology much more in terms of how it interconnects with us and how the reaction of society is shaping the technology or shaping the development um, of of our food choices. It goes both ways. We are shaping food and food is shaping us. I think this is more or less the same story around tomatoes, right? Yes, yes. So can go on a rant yeah tomatoes yeah another 10 minute thing (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed Indeed. but there's this tradition on the podcast that our previous guests leave the question to our next guest so our guest left the following question for you and that is whey protein is often used in sport nutrition for recovery and for a good reason Looking at sustainability of whey, it seems like there are two camps. A good idea, since it is a byproduct of the cheese-making process and would otherwise be wasted, or a bad idea, since it helps sustain a damaging industry. Hmm. Which camp are you in and why? Yeah, fascinating. I like that question. I very much like that question. I think it's very fundamental. Um, You know, so the... When industrialization hit, I mean, it didn't hit. It's like more of a period and it hit over like 100, 200 years. So it's still hitting. It's still hitting. <laughs> because, of course, like industrialization is uh, is happening at, in geographies at different time frames. Um, so the industrialization of animal agriculture uh, was something that was harshly criticized because it seems so unappreciative. It seems like if you have uh, a cow, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to not be too frank with my wording. Um, if you are processing, pretty much I'm literally processing uh, animal animals in a factory, the issue is that 
people see that as unappreciative, but then you can also look at it from a different point of view. You can say, if something gave its life, you might as well want to make the best of it. And it's like, what would that be if you kill animals and then the byproducts are not used? That's the Malthusians, the modern Malthusians would be in a big outcry about it. <laughs> now, um, the thing that drives the production of animals, and that's also crazy if you if you think about the wording, the production of animals, because that's where we were, we're at, uh, realistically, with how the systems are working. It's about the meat consumption, most likely, or to, to a different extent, the dairy consumption. So you're not, yes, you are, you are indirectly co-funding the industry, but it would be even more of a waste, in my opinion, to just out of principle, not consume it. Uh, the thing that needs to change is the overall demand for steak, for example, needs to be reduced. Because as long as there's still the same amount of steak consumption, there are not going to be fewer animals. No matter if you stop buying leather and you uh, don't use gelatin and you don't uh, wear leather shoes. Uh, and I, I moderated a conference called The Future of, of Alt Protein Production, and I was in such a pickle because the only fitting shoes that I have are leather shoes, like this beige leather. I bought them like five years ago. And I was thinking, oh, can I moderate a conference like on the future of all protein production in leather shoes? Like that's edgy. <laughs> and I was, I was in a store and I was like looking for pairs specifically to buy just for this conference. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? No, like these shoes are fine. Like they, I had to fix them already once, but like, it's for me to buy a new pair to be like more palpable for a sustainability driven conference. Like that's just the irony. If somebody's going to ask me about that, I'm going to tell them the story, you know, uh, but let people be outraged about it now. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, it, I, I think I may be controversial in my belief uh, regarding that, but uh, as long, I think it's also useful to sometimes be pragmatic about, yeah, let's use the resources. If they're there, like let's use them you now while not supporting the uh that exploitation or the the lack of sustainability of course okay and marina there's this personal question that we always make that some of the guests find it like a lot of times the most difficult one to answer what is your favorite food slash dish I like sweet potatoes. <laughs> No, I haven't eaten sweet potatoes in a while because like I really like these proper orange ones. Like you cut them and they're just glowing orange and are really sweet. And I just struggle to find them right now. Um but yeah, if I would be a vegetable, I think I would be a sweet potato. <laughs> they're so, you know, they're so resistant. Like there is again, tubers are great because you can grow them in hard conditions uh they yeah they're easy to transport they last long and sweet potatoes just are awesome like if they're caramelized in the oven oh <laughs> rocks <laughs> uh, and okay and and just a little last question that it was there and i really want to do it out of personal interest overall is your last session is in the podcast is about uh food innovation books can you give us uh, some quick recommendations, but really quick, like uh, name, a little bit of it, uh, like what you recommended at Fast. Okay, I would recommend two. Uh, so one of them being Stuffed and Starved by Raj Patel. I like this if I would recommend it for people who want to have a, an egalitarian social view on the food system, who are interested in geopolitical issues, looking at how regulation has shaped the food system in the global south. I think there are some interesting takeaways there. And one book that we haven't covered on the Red to Green podcast, but I wanted to cover in that season, but we ran out of time, was Regenesis 
Um, but and I like the, especially the, the first half of Regenesis. It's available on Audible, and he talks about the food system as a system and how systems in general become more unstable as they become more interconnected. So the more the nodes in a food system act this in similar ways and the stronger they are linked to each other, the more a disruption of one part of the system is going to affect the rest of the system. And that's something that we need to consider in a, in a globalized society, right? The somebody uh, once told me like, oh, but globalization is making our food system more stable. And I'm like, yeah, but that's because we are in the Western world. So if part of the food system uh, is destroyed, we actually use globalization to get our resources um, from just a different part of the world because everything is nicely interconnected. But for people who are part of this globalized system, who are on the other side of the equation, uh, for them they do not have a diversified local food system that they can then have like that can be a backup for them <laughs> they are they need to play with the market uh, and they will have the short end of the stick so it's always the question for who is the food system designed like and is the benefit of one party the downside of the other but that's the egalitarian perspective speaking there Okay, then uh, now we have to just say thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for all the knowledge that you shared and for all the stories. I think like, it's really fun to hear. Uh, and also for the conversation that and all the advice that you give also out of, uh, out, out of the recorded conversation. So thanks, Marina, for coming. And... We desire you the wish the best for uh, for your work and for Red thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. <laughs>